Teach Me Something, the podcast where I investigate something that I'm just really curious to know, and then I tell you all the things that didn't really bore me. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. Uh, let's just start out by acknowledging that I am super congested and my voice sounds just... Oh, I thought you were doing like an like accent this, or a voice or by something. The way. <laughs> yeah, okay. I just want to clarify, I know. I, I'm going to acknowledge it just so you're not like, what is happening right now? Sure. This is just how I sound right now, so get used to it. I certainly have, unfortunately. Fair enough. Yes. So, you have seen the title. I you... have. I just typed it, so. <laughs> I was talking to the listeners, Everett. Them too. It's not all about you. I just like to see myself as uh, part of the listening crowd, so I get to represent them at times. This is true, mm-hmm. I suppose. So you already know that this podcast is about William the Conqueror. You, however, may not know who that is. Maybe. When that was. Uh, You might be intrigued. You might be like, I don't want to sit here for a history lesson. I don't know what you're thinking. Um, But if I could intrigue you, there's Mm -hmm. Vikings. Good. And war. Also good. And tapestries. Oh. Potentially good as well. Which always reminds me of Indiana Jones. Yeah. I'm here to see the tapestries. Um, Alright, so let's... Uh, sh- shall we just dive on in? Yeah, let's uh, teach us something. Teach me something. In this case. Okay. So, let's set the scene. Okay. Because we need some context to where we are in history. And where we are. Nice, warm, um, summer day... Out on the glades. Uh, yeah, I guess. I'm about to say something about the Ides of June. So I oh, guess it's... <laughs> good. So we're talking about the Viking Age. Okay. Which is from about 800 to 1100 CE. The Viking Age in Western Europe. Okay. Um, started with the raid on the Lindisfarne Monastery in England and ended with the Norman... Conquest of 1066. So during this time, let's just jump right in here and say I know that these countries are not France and England yet. Right. Francia and Anglia in the the Latin or, you know, the kingdoms of the Franks or, you know, there's different ways to refer to them. They weren't called that. But for simplicity's sake, I would like to refer to them as France and England during this episode, just to help with context, and it's just easier that way. In terms of geographical locations, it's something we currently understand. So. Yes, so that's what we're going with. Um, so what basically happened here is that differences in the military defenses of these countries and their response to the raiding and settlement of the Vikings resulted in the Vikings being fairly beaten back and massacred in England and in France kind of settling in and growing in power. Um, so in England, let's start with England. Sure. In 793 was the first recorded Viking raid 
Uh, quote, on the eyes of June, the harrying of the heathen destroyed God's church in Lindisfarne, bringing ruin and slaughter. That's from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Okay. It's like a yearly paper. Oh. Kind of thing. Yeah. So, uh, they, you know, Vikings made regular raids around the coasts of England and they looted and captured people as slaves and they often targeted monasteries. Not because they were godless heathens necessarily, but because they had lots of of treasure. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of loot. Yeah. Exactly. You know, like they had silver and gold things and yeah. Um, And then linens and books and other valuables too. Not honestly what the Vikings were after. They wanted treasure. Like, you know, real easy to I assume those things had trade value as well, but okay. Maybe. I don't know. Fair enough. So, gradually, the raiders kind of began to stay along the coast. They built winter camps, and then they kind of settled down on the land they had seized, um, mainly in, like, the east and north of England. Okay. Um, Outside Anglo-Saxon England, like, the north area of Britain, the Vikings took over and settled the areas of Iceland, uh, the Faroe Islands, Orkney Islands, mm-hmm. became farmers and fishermen. They would sometimes launch summer raiding or trading from these locations. Um, the Orkneys became really powerful. Um, and then the Earls of Orkney started to rule most of Scotland. So to this day, uh, especially on the northeast coast of the Orkney Islands, many Scots still have Viking names. Very cool. Yeah, so that, I yeah, I think it's interesting when something that long ago still influences um, what's going on today. Um, to the west, the Isle of Man became a Viking kingdom. Um, in Ireland, the Vikings were raiding around the coast and up the rivers. They founded Dublin, Cork, and Limerick hmm. as strongholds okay. in Irish territory. Yeah. Very cool. Yes. So, okay, back to England, the Vikings took over Northumbria, East Anglia, and parts of um, Mercia, Mercia, I don't know how you say it, M-E-R-C-I-A. Okay. I don't know if it's Mercia or Mercia. But anyways, those are the areas they took over, they took over. and then uh, in 866, they captured what's now York, the Vikings called it Jorvik, and they made it their capital. So the Viking capital was York. Okay. Uh, they continued to kind of invade south and west of there. And then the kings of Mercia, let's go with Mercia, and Wessex, um, didn't, they tried to resist. And they were not doing the best job. But then came along uh, Alfred of Wessex. Mm, so yes. Alfred of Wessex became the king of England. King Alfred the Great. Hmm. Being named the Great, I suspect, means that he may have been successful in this arena. Yeah, he was the only king ever nicknamed that. Really? So, well, in England. Okay. I'm sure. <laughs> not not even everywhere. In, even in England's history, I'm surprised there's only been one called the Great. Right. So, King Alfred ruled from 871 to 899. He defeated the Vikings at the Battle of Eddington in 876. And so after that battle, the Viking leader, who was called Guthrum, converted to Christianity. So, you know, big wow. win there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in 886, Alfred took London from the Vikings and started to fortify it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the Vikings really had a lot of territory. Yeah, really? Yeah. Um, uh, in that same year, he signed a treaty with Guthrum. And that treaty kind of broke up where the Vikings were going to have and where the English were going to have. Kind of like, just fine, you can have some area, but stay away from us. 
And the Viking territory became known as Dane Law. And it was like the northwest, northeast, and east areas of England. And that's where people are going to be subject to Danish laws. Dane Law. Okay. Yeah. Um, Alfred took kingship of the rest of the lands. Sure. So Alfred's grandson, Athelstan, became the first true king of England. I don't know what the, the definition the definition of that is maybe because they got um, more of the territory back from okay. those areas that the Danelaw areas. It didn't really, uh, let's just, there's a lot of stuff going on in this episode. And if I dove into literally everything, it would have been way too long. Sure. Because it was when I started. Right. <laughs> um, so, Athelstan uh, led an English victory over the Vikings at the Battle of, something I'm going to say terribly, Brunaburg. In 937, oh yes, I, I wrote it right here in my notes, I should, I got ahead of myself. His kingdom for the first time included the Dane Law, so that was probably why he was the first true king of England. Got it. He got this area back, yep. And then in 954, Eric Bloodaxe, the last Viking king of, yeah, that's a sweet name. Yeah. Anyways, the last Viking king of York was killed and his kingdom was taken over by English earls, so... 954, England's kind of getting their stuff together, and they are England. Right. Kicking out the Vikings. But in contrast, France, the Franks, they didn't put up much of a fight and kind of went with an appeasement strategy. Hmm. Um, sure that went so, really well. Well, when they kept getting kicked out of England or losing wars and stuff, they're like, well, there's this other country, like, right over here. Yeah. So let's, you know, try over there. So they went raiding in France and didn't find much uh, resistance whatsoever. Uh, some of the reason for that is that Charlemagne exhausted a lot of their military resources um, due to his kind of warmongering. He was, he was trying to create a big French empire in other yeah. parts of the world. And that depleted a lot of their military resources for defending their home turf. Right. Um, so they were, yeah, they were just really unprepared. Um, France also has a lot of waterways very, that, that very made true. infiltration of their country, like deep into the country, much easier for the Vikings, especially because Viking ships were becoming really well known for, you know, strength and durability and range. And, and so that was like their, that was one of their big strengths was mm. their ships, right? So... English, you probably know this, but the English Navy has a long, proud history. Even back to this day, they were a lot better at defending from the sea. Mm -hmm. And France was not. Or defending from water. And France was not. Right. Um, so this is kind of some of the reasons that the Vikings did better in France than in England. Um, so... I'll give you an example here. The Vikings sailed up the Seine uh, to the former capital of France during the infamous Siege of Paris in 845 without meeting any, like, confrontation whatsoever. They just sailed right on through there. Um, quote, Charles, who was the king at the time of the Franks, made efforts to offer some resistance but realized his men could not possibly win, so he made a deal with them by handing over to them 7,000 pounds of silver as a bribe he restrained from advancing further and persuaded them to go away. So he basically just taught them, if you attack us, we'll give you money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and that became known as Danegeld, or payment to the Vikings to make them go away. 
So they would just keep sailing ships up, you know, the Loire, the Seine, whatever, raiding and burning monasteries and towns and cities and whatever, and just take some money and go away uh, for a little while. And then they'd come back when they wanted some more money. So it's like an ATM machine. <laughs> it really was. Yeah. So it wasn't just the lack of naval strength and stuff like that. And it wasn't even just the depleted military. It was the infighting also in France. Right. The, the kingdom of the Franks here. So Charlemagne's grandsons were kind of tearing the empire apart and really focused on fighting between themselves for who got to rule what. And they left the whole northern area open for the taking, basically. Yeah. Um, so at this time, and, you know, what's now France... Uh, the kingdom consisted of three realms. Each one of them was ruled by one of Charlemagne's grandsons. So Charles the Bald controlled the western part. Did he have much hair or? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why <laughs> these guys let themselves be named these guys. Louis the German ruled the eastern region. Eastern region. <laughs> that makes sense. Good. And Lothar reigned over the Middle Kingdom. I don't know why he doesn't get a nickname, but. Yeah, that's. But it's terrible. Not, I probably would rather have no nickname than be Charles the Bald, but that's just me. I don't know. Well, I mean, unless you're bald and, you know, look really good and pull it off or something. Are you sure his nickname wasn't Charles, Charles the Sexy? Charles the Bald and really pulling it off? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So they were fighting over this Middle Kingdom and, again, kind of ignored that, that northern area. So in 911, King Charles III of the Franks... His nickname was Charles the Simple, which again, mm. <laughs> sounds super flattering to me. He made the Treaty of St. Clair sur Ept with Rollo, who was the Viking leader responsible for most of the attacks at this time. Okay. Rollo the Viking. Uh, the treaty granted the Vikings land and a duchy in northern France. So whoever ruled gets to be duke, basically. Really? Very simplest definition of duchy. Yeah. Okay. So. That, it's like part of their... Uh, aristocracy or like yeah any 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 dukes are are under the king right yeah oh them whatever but yeah they're just like okay okay you can be part of our team yeah that's what they were hoping yeah, yeah. and they thought since the vikings come in from the north to do their raids if that would they make station sense. them up there then it basically no one else would stop. come in and compete yeah. with them yeah actually it's a decent theory of his so I'm going to quote from the original treaty from 9-11, which is really cool that we have that Yeah. still. Um, we give and grant this abbey, of which the main part lies in the area of Marseille on the river Oire, to Saint-Germain and to his monks for their upkeep, except that part of the abbey's lands which we have granted to the Normans of the Seine, namely to Rollo and his companions for the defense of the kingdom. They actually wrote that right in there. So they were definitely conceding land to him supposedly to defend France from other Vikings. That was the, that was okay. their thinking. Um, so it was the area around the mouth of the Seine and what is now the city of Rouen and became known as Northmania, um, Les, Les Normands in France, okay. which means Northmen. And we know it and they eventually knew it as Normandy. Okay, got it. So within a generation, the Normans extended their territory westward to the districts of Lower Normandy. Um, but France, well, the Franks, didn't really completely give in without a fight. Um, in 942, the Duke of Normandy, who at the time was William Longsword. 
was assassinated. Mm. And his successor was his 10-year-old son, Richard I of Normandy. King Louis IV of the Franks um, decided that, you know, what better time to attack than when there's a 10-year-old on the throne. Right. So he attacks Normandy and tries to capture Rouen, which is the major river port along the Seine between Paris and the English Channel. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know why he was just so overconfident, because of course a 10-year-old is not ruling by himself. Yeah. That's not what happens. So a bunch of Vikings helped out here including people like Bernard the Dane and Harold the Viking and Sigtrig the King of the Sea. Harold the Viking. Harold the Viking. You spell Harold H-A-R-A-L-D when you're a Viking, by the way. That's fine. Just seems a little, what's the term, reductive? On the nose. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, keep going. Yeah. So these Vikings end up taking King Louis hostage. Hmm. Backfire. And they only released him with, by trading for one of his own sons and a bishop. Hmm. So Louis pretty much sacrificed his son to, for his freedom, but that's just, that's how it goes. Well, and one guy who moves diagonally. <laughs> God. Yup. So let's talk about the Normans. Because okay. I'm sure you've heard of Normandy. So I have, yes. I'm sure most people have heard of Normandy. Yeah. So it's interesting to learn the history of Normandy. Of course. Vikings. Um, so they began intermingling with the local Frankish people. Probably not by choice of those who are already living there. That's yeah. not how those things work. Um, by the year 1000, they'd mostly given up paganism and were mostly all French-speaking Christians. Okay. But that's not to say that they held the same kind of Christian values as their Frankish neighbors, nor listened to the church with the same reverence. Sure. Um, they were known to live with hordes of mistresses, that's how they put it, and illegitimate children, and they recognized them as their children, which was the thing that the Franks were appalled by. Right. How dare you recognize the fact that those are your children? Yeah. How dare you? Um they're also just really, really good at imitating and improving the, like, arts and skills that they saw in other cultures. Okay. That was one thing the Vikings, the Normans, especially the Normans, were just, like, really, really good at. So, for example, castle building uh, and cavalry warfare. So they uh, became masters in using a really simple but very effective type of castle called a Mott and Bailey castle. So that's where there's a mound, which is called the Mott. Topped by a timber palisade and a tower, surrounded by a ditch and palisaded enclosure, which is called the Bailey. So that's just how the Normans built their castles. And believe me, the Normans would go on to build a lot of castles. Okay. They built them all kind of in this way. Um, and they insisted on building their castles everywhere they went from Cane Stone. Um, C-A-E-N. Cane. I'm probably saying it wrong because this is a French place. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Because it was easy to carve and resistant to weather and ballistic weaponry. And so it's um, like a yellowish white limestone that's quarried, as the name suggests, in a place called Cain in northwest France. Um, it's a, yeah, it's yeah. a city in northwest France. Um, the Normans, again, were really good at learning cavalry warfare. They learned it very quickly when they moved to Normandy. They used the kind of same types of breeds of warhorse as the Frankish uh, Angevin and Breton soldiers used. Okay. Um, 
they copied the kind of styles of their heavy mail armor and their kite-shaped shields and, like, the long broad blade swords, slender lances. They kind of copied all that stuff. Um, and then they excelled at it, especially because they really placed an importance on training their youth as in this, like, knight-style combat. Um, another interesting thing is that their style of government, they really... Uh, took things from the Byzantine Greeks, the Muslims. They wanted um, to, like, learn from their literatures and stuff uh, and, and adopt certain government styles. So that was pretty interesting. They took that with them to Italy and every place the Normans kind of went to after this. But this is about William the Conqueror. Right. So I would like to get back on track and talk about him. Okay. But we're kind of talking about him already because he was born in Normandy. That's what this is about. Got it. So we get to, from Vikings to Normandy to the William. William the Conqueror was born in a Norman town called Filet, which just means cliff in French. It doesn't mean like a nice piece of fish. Um, That is my issue with French, like the French language in general, because I don't understand how to differentiate the different words when you don't say half the letters. I'm probably saying it wrong, but I thought it was fillet because it's F-A-L-A-I-S-E. Mm, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no one knows. I'm so sorry. Anyone listening to this, that's French. Um, at birth, he was obviously not called William the Conqueror yet. Oh. Let's just, let's clear that up. Interesting. Okay, fine. His first nickname was William the Bastard. Oh. Not because he was, like, particularly mean as a child or anything, but right. because he was born to unmarried parents. Right. But, as I said, the Normans didn't necessarily care. Unlike the French. Yeah. Or even the English. Most people cared in that day. Right. So, the whole lineage thing is why people hate history. This person begat this person who begat this person, and it was this person's cousin. So, let me just try to keep it a little bit short. Okay. Let's start with the guy we've already talked about, Richard I of Normandy. Okay. The one that became Duke at 10 years old. Yes. In 19, or 19, in 942. And single-handedly captured a king. Totally. All by himself. Yeah, all by himself. So, Richard I was the grandson of Rollo, Rollo the Viking. Mm Mm-hmm. The guy that started Normandy. Right. Right. So, one of Richard I's many children was Richard II. Oh, I see how that goes. Um... Richard II was a legitimate child. Okay. Born to Richard's wife. Not one of his seven or more illegitimate children that he had with his many mistresses. Just so just so we're clear here. So Richard I dies in 996. Richard II takes over as Duke of Normandy. Right. Okay, great. Following so far. I am. Richard II also has a lot of kids. Of course. Okay. Among them were Richard III, his oldest. So, Interesting. And Robert the First. Uh. Yes, we've got a different name now. Well, not different. Back to the... Yeah, it's it gets confusing. Okay, so Richard II dies in 1026. Richard III now becomes Duke of Normandy. This makes sense. Okay. Shortly after Richard III takes over, Robert the First, remember his little brother? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, challenges him. Tries to take the the rain. And uh, and that makes Richard the Third angry. Oh. Yeah. So he attacks and takes the fillet <laughs> I don't know if I say the right castle from Robert. Then he dies somehow mysteriously 
Hmm. Very mysteriously. History suspects Robert may have had something to do with this in retribution for his castle taking. Okay. Richard, or Robert, sorry, this is so confusing. Robert I then proclaims himself Duke of Normandy and uh, gives himself the nickname Robert the Magnificent or someone, someone close to him. Did. He's Robert the Magnificent. Okay. William. We're, we're William. We're finally at him. He is the only son of Robert I. Okay. Okay. So to clarify, this makes William the great, great, great grandson of Rollo the Viking. Right. William's mother was named um, something that history is not entirely certain of. We're going to go with Herleva. It could also be Harlotta, Herlet, Arlot, Alave, or Belon. <laughs> One of these things Just is not depending, like the other. Right? Yeah. Um, depending on what source you use. Sure. I did like the joke in the book I read that said French men never really remember a beautiful woman's name anyways, so why does it matter? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So we're going to go with Herleva, who was the daughter of a tanner in Filet. And mm. tanners were super low class. Yeah. Like lowest of the low because they were super smelly because you used manure to tan leather. Yeah. So Robert I refused to marry her. He's like, look, I'm going to do what I want with you and you're going to be my mistress, but I cannot marry you because you're the daughter of a tanner and you get that, right? Um, I don't know if she had much choice. So Probably not. William was born in 1027 or 1028, something like that. Sure. Um, in 1035, Robert leaves to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He... Before he leaves, he appoints William, his illegitimate son, as his heir. And like I said, in France, I would not fly. No. But in Normandy, they're like, okay. Sure. I mean, he didn't have any other sons. It wasn't like there was a legitimate one anyways. Yeah. And women couldn't do things. So, William it is. Um, Robert dies on his way back from this pilgrimage. So, this is how William becomes William I, Duke of Normandy. This is in the year 1035 again, at the age of eight. Right. All right. We got through the lineage stuff. So, cue French king deciding to attack? No. No, not this time? I think they've learned their lesson. Sure. I think that, that makes sense. Okay, so... I mean, lots of little stuff happened. There was a lot of fighting. Okay. There was. But, um, it was mostly within Normandy. Okay. So, I was... My, my next statement was going to be about that, but that's okay. You got us jump started. I did. Um... When the child is the technical ruler, there's always a lot of fighting amongst the the nobility. Yes. Yes. So people were just killing each other left and right until William was old enough to actually take the throne, really, like really take power. Um, I don't want to go into everything. There were so many people killing each other in battles and little skirmishes. And William did some fighting as a teenager, but like he was a decently smart political mind. So okay. what he decided was he's going to make the right marriage. And that's going to be sense. important. Yeah. yeah. And I do mean making it because there seemed to be nothing but like a sheer force of will behind his marriage. Um, the church was getting in the way, you see. Mm, that church. So William wanted to marry Mathilde. Or Matilda in English. But since we're going with a French name, it's Mathilde. And she was the daughter of the Count of Flanders. Okay. Mathilde's mother was the daughter of Robert II, who was the king of the Franks. 
Okay. The lineage stuff is very confusing. But whatever. The important thing is that she's royal. Yes. She's associated with the Frank. Like, we could make some a good union here, some strong power unity, you know. Right. So the story goes that Matilda refuses, maybe on the grounds that William is a bastard and she was more noble than him and it's not a good match for her. And William was very unhappy, so he gets on his horse and rides 400 kilometers into the Frankish territory. Legend says he very aggressively does something to her. Maybe, hmm. or maybe he just asks really nicely and she's so flattered he rode so far, but that's probably not what happened. Probably not. Whatever happened is a little lost to history, but the point is that she agrees to the marriage now, probably with some slight nudging from her father. And they arranged the union in 1049. William is 24 and Matilda is 20. And Pope Leo IX forbids the marriage at the Council of Reims, October 1049. Okay. And the likely reason for this was the consanguinity laws at the time. Okay, continue. You gave me a face. Yes. Consanguinity laws are laws we still have today. Really? Yeah. They That just means laws that prohibit people from marrying or having sex with blood relatives. I was gonna. I was gonna ask if there was some. I was thinking in that direction, trying to piece it together. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, cause sanguine. You know, blood. Yeah. That's right. Right. So, the difference between our laws and their laws is in how strict they are. Like how how closely do you have to be related before you trip these laws? Okay. Okay. So under Roman civil law, which is where the early laws of the Catholic Church came from. Yes. Couples were forbidden to marry if they were within four degrees of relatedness. And then in the ninth century, the church decides to raise this to seven. If you're within seven degrees of relatedness, you cannot get married. Um, it's kind of confusing because they also changed the way that you measure how related they were. Okay. But just the basics is you cannot get married to anyone more closely related than your seventh cousin now. So this is ridiculously strict. Okay. Uh, You'd almost be surprised to know that it's way more strict than the laws we have today. I guess so. I I would need to think through what seventh cousin means. uh, Very, 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 very not related to you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's 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 very, 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 very not related to you is the best way I can describe it. Matilda, or Matilde, and William, they were third cousins. Okay. So sometime between 1050 and 1053, they just got married anyways. And I don't care about you, church, which again is not something a French right. somebody would have done. Yeah. <laughs> Screw you, church. No, no. Um, the church decides to acknowledge their marriage in 1059, possibly slash probably because the couple built two grand churches mm. as a bribe, I mean gift to uh, the church. Yeah, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> this is just a fun fact. Um, they were mismatched size-wise. How they're, so? They're, some of their skeletal bones have been recovered and measured. Okay. And it's estimated that William was about five foot ten, which really? is a good height for the day. Okay. 
And Matilde was like four foot two. Yeah, it's a little different. Yeah. Um, They seemed like a decent match. There was some domestic violence, but, you know, again, that seemed pretty commonplace. But they were together for 30 years. They had 10 children. And William is well known for the fact that they thought he didn't have any mistresses or illegitimate children. Really? It was a very unique (laughs) back in the day. So uh, I don't know why, but that's, yeah. So what I want to focus on now is how William the Conqueror becomes the king of England. Not France, as the the story seems to be going towards. Correct. He becomes the king of England. Some people say that this is the last successful invasion of England. Okay. Some other people disagree. And I will get to that at the very end and let you be the judge for yourself. Or, Or I just get to be the judge. Set the record well, you straight said that for you're all representing the readers so, or the listeners. Not readers, that doesn't make sense. I, the I, listeners, so I guess you're going to have to. I think I represent the entire population outside of you, so what I say goes. No pressure. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, despite that these events took place in the 11th century, about a thousand years ago, mm-hmm. almost a thousand years ago, we think we know quite a lot about what happened thank you primarily to something called the bayou tapestry okay so in my head here i was like i'm gonna be clever and i'm gonna look up what makes a tapestry a tapestry and not just an embroidery very good enlighten us please. i don't really care but maybe it would be interesting so that's where my thought process was sure okay so tapestry is a Textile art, usually hand-woven on a loom, hung on a wall, draped on furniture. Okay. But to be a tapestry, it has to meet this definition. A weft-faced plain weave with discontinuous wefts that conceal all of its warps. I'm so glad that that's cleared up now. (laughs) Do you feel enlightened? Very enlightened. I have to say, I stared at my screen and I was like, am I just going to delete this thing or am I going to actually now have to go look up wefts and warps? You know which one I chose. I do. Uh, Okay, so think of a tapestry as a grid composed of threads that are fixed on a frame. That frame is the loom. Yes. Vertical threads are called warps. Horizontal threads are called wefts. So the wefts are a collection of, like, separate pieces of wool threads. And a tapestry is made by repeatedly weaving the wefts over and under those vertical warp threads. Okay. Then you squish or tamp the horizontal threads down so they're very close together. You're completely hiding the vertical threads from view. Tapestry. Tapestry. I followed that. Yeah. Okay. So a tapestry is like when you make a painting and you completely paint over the whole canvas. Sure. And I was feeling so clever figuring all this out. And then I found out that the Bayou Tapestry, like most tapestries from the medieval period, isn't a tapestry. It's not a tapestry? (laughs) Of course. It is an an embroidery. So really, there's a few definitions (laughs) for tapestry. Exactly what you said. And if somebody important in history called it a tapestry. Yeah, exactly. Great. Yeah. So we're going with definition number two here. There's a lot of tapestries called tapestries that aren't tapestries. So we're going to keep just saying tapestry. Okay. Over and over. Um, the next um, odd thing I did a deep dive on was how to actually pronounce Bayou. 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 There's a lot of 
confusion on my part here. And I mispronounced so many things in these podcasts that I thought I would at least try to get this one right. Mm-hmm. It kind of depends on the American or British pronunciation. Americans say bayou. Okay. British say bayou. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And French, since it is a French word, it's more like baya. Baya tapestry. Okay. So in Canada, we have this issue where we're constantly <laughs> caught between the British and the Americans. And kind of the French in a way. <laughs> I was going to say, we also have a lot of French speakers here. So um, to this second, I'm still conflicted on how to say this. I mean, I think what you're trying to say is we don't know what it's called. We know it's not a tapestry. <laughs> and so does it even exist? It certainly does exist. Okay, there we go. Making progress. That's about the only thing I'm certain of. Because as you'll learn later, some things might not be... As it appears. Yeah. Hmm. So I'm going to choose the most Canadian approach possible. Okay. And I'm going to just apologize in advance. Because Good. I think I'll probably end up saying it like five different ways. Probably won't even be the three I already mentioned. Great. Um, and... Um, sorry about that. Hey, because <laughs> it's, it's gonna be it's gonna be a little it might be annoying to people that have the, a good ear. Okay. Um. So about the tapestry. Bayah <laughs> tapestry. <laughs> right. Um. It's honestly like to be serious here. It's like a a pretty amazing piece of art. I do suggest you do some Google image searches. Um. Because it's uh astonishing like to think about how old it is how big it is like how long it survived like the details it's just it's i do hope one day we can go to france and see it mm-hmm. um not just to see it though but you know i do okay. hope to see it as if we ever included go to in france. a trip yeah. yes got it it is one of the largest tapestries in the world certainly the largest of its time one of the largest non-tapestries in the world we're just saying tapestry. We decided this already. <laughs> yeah, keep going. It's made up of 58 scenes. They all have Latin titles. Cool. As they do back in the day. Um, it contains, the whole thing contains 626 characters. Like people, not characters like letters. Yeah. Um, 202 horses. It uses at least eight different colors of yarn uh, on a linen background. It's made of linen. It is... About 70 meters long, which is just crazy. Wow, that's... About yeah. 50 centimeters tall for all you um, Americans out there. 231 feet by 19.5 inches. Mm-hmm. So it starts with a scene of the King of England at the time, who is Edward. And the last scene is Harold Godwinson fleeing from the Battle of Hastings. But that's not the actual end of the tapestry. Hmm. Um, we've lost a sum. Oh. But it's been lost, what's the phrase they use, since time immemorial. We've never known of a time where it wasn't lost, so I don't know when it happened. Sure. Um, probably about one and a half meters have been lost. And the final scene that I just described with Harold Godwinson, the English fleeing, um, historians think that that maybe was added in the early 1800s to kind of stoke some anti-English sentiments. So really? is that the last scene of the... T- we don't know. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. I was wondering how they can't tell for sure. Certainly they could date some things. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Doesn't matter. The interesting thing is that there's definitely some strong Cloaked debate. in conspiracy now. Don't know how to pronounce it. 
It's not a tapestry and cloaked in conspiracy. Nothing is as it seems. Yeah. Okay, this is uh, an interesting story. Yeah, so keep in mind, just as above, it was not made without certain biases. Of course. And agendas. And we don't know what about it may have been altered. Sure. We think some things were done on it to paint certain people in a more or less flattering light. Reasonable. Um, this, of course, wouldn't be the first time or only time in history that that's happened. Uh, we don't know for certain who made it and who commissioned it. Right. So the best guess is here. We think the tapestry was made by Anglo-Saxon seamstresses. They were famous throughout Europe for the quality of the embroidery they did. Uh, the Latin text contains hints of Anglo-Saxon. And the vegetable dyes for the yarns can be found in cloth that was traditionally woven in England. Okay. Reasonable evidence. Yeah. So, um, you might think or guess that William himself would be the most logical one to commission it. You know, it's a display of his victorious invasion of England. But instead... All, most of the evidence points to his half-brother, Odo, Bishop of Bea, maybe, and Earl of Kent, being the one that commissioned the tapestry. Okay. So, as an aside here, some historians say the seamstresses appear to have added in lots of jokes at William's expense, and the storyline maybe seems to be told by someone who wanted to subtly undermine William and not celebrate him. So we're pretty sure it wasn't William. Okay. Yeah. Also reasonable evidence. Here's some evidence for Odo. He appears as a major figure in three different scenes in the tapestry. In one scene, he is shown blessing the meal that had been prepared after William's army moves to Hastings. In another scene, he is so uh, shown seated with William and William's other half-brother, Robert, Count of Mortain. And in the third scene, he's shown rallying William's troops after the rumor that William had been killed in the first charge of the battle. Um, some more evidence is that three of Odo's vassals, uh, Turold, Wadard, and Vital, are named in the tapestry. Just, hmm. like, actually named for no real discernible reason. Right. Yeah. Um, and some other evidence is that it was found in the um, Bayou Cathedral. And that was Odo's cathedral. Um, it was likely commissioned around 1077, if this was the case, because that's kind of when the cathedral was built. Okay. And it was likely he commissioned it to decorate his cathedral. That's what the thinking is. Yeah. Plus, you know, they found the receipt he submitted on his tax forms for <laughs> reimbursement. <laughs> He's part of the church. He doesn't taxes. <laughs> what are you thinking? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> So, between its beginning in the 11th century in the Bayou Cathedral and its current home in the Bayou Museum, what has happened to this tapestry in the last 950-ish years? Right. Well, we think it spent seven centuries in that cathedral. That's a long time. It really is. So, there was an inventory found of the cathedral that was done in the year 1476 that listed the tapestry as being among the artifacts. It was listed as a church item. And apparently it was only hung in the nave once per year, just for the week of the Feast of St. John the Baptist. Which, um, I don't know, that's an important day in or in French Canada. I don't okay. know. St. Jean Baptiste. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, they don't know why. 
what association it might have had. At the end, they figured it was just there to like air it out. They're like, well, we just need an we excuse gotta, we to gotta, air it out once a year. <laughs> yeah, we need to pick a date when this happens. Yeah. This is it. Because the rest of the time, I was just folded up in this wooden chest in the vestry. Anyway, so it was largely unknown it was even at this cathedral, which is mind-blowing to me. What an amazing piece of work to be hidden in the trunk for most of its existence. Right. Um, we don't know anything else about its whereabouts until the French Revolution. Okay. So in 1792, it was confiscated as public property. It was to be cut into pieces and used to cover ammunition wagons. But luckily, it was saved by a local lawyer, whose very French name I am not going to pronounce right now, who took it to his house to keep it safe. Mm-hmm. And then in 1803, the Fine Arts Commission had the tapestry transferred to the Musée Napoleon, which I didn't realize was the Louvre. I didn't realize Napoleon had the Louvre renamed that about 10 years after it opened. I didn't know that either. The Napoleon Museum, yeah. Okay. Napoleon. I'm, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Um, so it was there until February 1804, and they think Napoleon was trying to use it as a propaganda piece because at the time he was planning to invade Britain. Right. So he's I, like, I ah, England's most historic defeat. Let's display this. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he didn't invade. No. That is. So he sends the tapestry back to Bayou where it was displayed and then kind of stored and displayed and stored because there was a lot of like conflicts and wars in the region. So they were trying to keep it safe, um, which almost didn't work. On June 27th, 1944, the Gestapo takes the tapestry. Oh. To the Louvre, because they had control over it, right? Yeah. From the Vichy government, the French yeah. collaborators. Right. Um, on August 18th, three days before the Wehrmacht withdraws from Paris, Himmler sent a message. But we know this because it was intercepted by Bletchley Park. Um, and he ordered it to be taken to a place of safety, which they thought he meant Berlin. Luckily... You know, things moved a little slower in the communication department and execution back in the day. So by the time the SS attempts to take possession of the tapestry, which is August 22nd, the Louvre was actually back in French hands. I see. They couldn't get to it. So very, very close to, I mean, we know the Nazis really did like to steal lots of art. So that was almost gone. And then after the liberation of Paris on August 25th, they put up the tapestry on public display in the Louvre again. And returned it in 1945 to Bayeux. So now it lives in the Bayeux Tapestry Museum, which is in an old monastery. Okay. They're hoping to build a, a new museum for it in 2026, if you're curious. Um, it is the only embroidery of its type to have lasted until present day. 400,000 people a year visit it. That's a lot. Wow. And because in my mind, this is a loose end because I need to picture things geographically. Bayeux is, not surprisingly, in the Normandy uh, region of northwest France. It's 10 kilometers south of the English Channel mm-hmm. and about 25 kilometers west northwest of Cane, that city of castle building fame. Cool. Yeah. So back to William the Conqueror again. Okay. Because, you know, off track. We'll, is, we'll talk about him eventually. This is about William the Conqueror. Well, debatable so far. That's why I do this podcast. Yeah. I go down whatever sort of rabbit holes I want. So... By the 1050s, William had acquired the reputation for ruthlessness that would go along with William the Conqueror's nickname, mm-hmm. um, especially when dealing with, you know, enemies, because he saw, like, what happened with his relatives and whatever. He sees that when you go easy on someone and just take, like, some of their stuff, then they might come back and assassinate you later. 
So, um, his method was that if he's going to go after someone, he's going to flat out kill them or make them so penniless and powerless that there's no way they could come back and assassinate him. Sure. Kind of killing them off in a different way. Yeah. So his next target, as you may have guessed from what I said earlier, was England. The current king of England, as I kind of mentioned in that first scene of the tapestry, which was, by the way, titled Edward Rex in Latin, was Edward the Confessor. But his control over England was pretty weak because all the earls were fighting over power and undermining his strength. Um, And another factor here is that Edward, even though he was married, had taken a vow of chastity. So he had no direct heir. Right. Who would be the next king was the question, which is probably why there was so much fighting. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So William had a somewhat legitimate claim to the throne. Lineage time again. (laughs) Okay. Uh, William's grandfather was the brother of Edward's father, Aethelred the Unready. Mm, That's a good name. (laughs) I love all the names. Um, And Edward also owed a debt to Normandy. Because we're now in a uh, period of history where England was suffering Viking invasions again. Okay. In 1013, Swain Forkbeard, who is a Viking if you cannot tell by the name. Uh, Seemed legit. He seizes the throne of England from King Ethelred, which means his wife, Emma of Normandy, she flees back to Normandy. She takes her sons, Alfred and Edward, who was 10 at the time. Okay. Okay. So Forkbeard dies in 1014. It's hard to say his name without people. And Ethelred returns to the throne, only to die two years later in 1016. Ethelred's eldest son, Edmund Ironside, takes over the throne, and then he dies a few months later. Oh, boy. So then the Vikings come back again to take control. See when Forkbeard's son, Knut the Great, seizes the throne. See? He's a Viking, not a king of England. So the great thing, you know. Okay. I mean... It's closer, but he sees yeah. the throne. Yeah, I know. They didn't recognize him, though. It's, a, okay. it's tough. History's tough, isn't it? It is, yes. Uh, so Edward's forced back into exile in Normandy. Um, Knut immediately then kills Edward's next older brother, which sure. makes Edward next in line. But then things get all weird, to me at least, because Emma then marries King Knut uh, the next year in 1017. To be clear, again, those were King Edward's children from another mother, so she clearly doesn't care that he just killed her stepson. I guess. Yeah, that's how things go, apparently. Yeah. So, the point is, Normandy had sheltered and raised Edward while his mom was back home being Queen of England. And this also means that when Edward does become king in 1042, he ends up bringing with him lots of Norman things, including his courtiers, his companions, his advisors. He fills the court with Normans. Okay. So, then a weird thing happens in this story. The Tapestry Museum and some other historical sources say Edward invites William over to England to declare him as heir to his crown. And these sources seem to be based on what was written in 1070 by William the Conqueror's close friend. Hmm. Okay. Not necessarily reliable. Yeah. The reason that's doubtful, though, that it actually happened like this, is that at the time, according to Anglo-Saxon law, the king's heir has to be approved by the White and Gamut. White and Gamut? Something like that. Which is a council of bishops and earls, and yes, definitely was J.K. Rowling's inspiration for the wise and gamut in Harry Potter. Definitely, definitely. 
So maybe Edward does say this to William. Uh, we can't know for sure, but in no way would it be legal way to appoint an heir. Sure. Um, and then also at this time, trouble was, was coming up for the Normans because one of the earls fighting for power in England was Godwin of Wessex. And now Godwin was the one who married his daughter to King Edward. Probably not super happy he was celibate and didn't produce any heirs with his daughter. Mm-hmm. Right? So he also hates Normans. He takes it upon himself to start some wars and forces all the king's Norman courtiers to go home. Okay. Okay. Now Godwin has another child too. A son named, appropriately, Harold Godwin's son. Oh. Yes. Yeah. And King Edward liked him quite a lot. Wink, wink. I see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was described as being quite handsome. People thought, maybe this is the reason for your celibacy. Wink, wink, wink. So Edward was now saying, now it's the 1060s, that, okay, Harold Godwinson is my heir, which would be a much easier choice to pass through the White and Gamut. Okay. Witten Gamut? There's so many hard things to pronounce this episode. Okay, you probably can guess how William felt about that. Probably. Which is why you'd be surprised to hear that Harold then shows up in Normandy in 1064 pretty much by himself. The Tapestry Museum suggests Edward tells Harold to go to Normandy to tell William that William was the heir to the throne. What? How does that make sense? But that is the description in the Tapestry Museum of what is happening in this scene. It makes little sense. Yeah. Um, the other explanation is that Edward was telling Harold to go get prisoners back from Normandy because there were two Godwins that had been held hostage in Normandy since 1051. That they, makes Maybe more Harold sense. was worried that William would kill them if he didn't get the throne. Sure. Right? So, no matter why he went, his journey went very poorly. His ship got blown off course. He lands on the turf of a Count Wido, who immediately takes him hostage. But as Duke of Normandy, William can come demand whatever he wants that washes up on his shores, so he takes the hostage. And William did something he'd become quite famous for, at least with his rich hostages. He makes the prisoners swear an oath of feudal fealty to him. Okay. Yep. So they're obliged to give him a percentage of everything they earned and help him defend his territory and would mean that he would have to give up his throne if William wanted it. Right. Right. If you break the oath, you're subject to death and eternal hellfire and all that stuff. Yeah. And then according to some sources, Harold also didn't know that William hid holy relics under the table when he made his oath. Which apparently <laughs> to just really seal the still deal. counts. Yeah. Okay. Now it's a sacred oath, sacred vow. So the tapestry then shows Harold sailing back to England, and it shows them all bowed over and ashamedly telling King Edward what happened. But this is very contradictory because... If he was sent there to tell William that he is the next king, then why would he be ashamedly telling him what happened? It yeah, seemed to seemed go like, fine. Yeah, he seemed to have been successful. So the Tapestry Museum might have some things interpreted oddly. Yeah, That's okay. my conclusion. Sure. The prisoner thing just makes more sense. Anyways, so in 1066, Edward the Confessor dies... Harold Godwinson accepts the White and Gamut's no, like, nomination to be the new King of England. Um, he used the admittedly kind of reasonable logic that he shouldn't be held to an oath that he made under such duress. That's ridiculous. Even though it's so sacred. Yeah. So William doesn't see it that way. No. No. So he writes to the Pope. Mm. Pope, he broke his sacred vow. 
and the Pope sides with William and sends him a consecrated banner to take along on his invasion. Wow. Yeah. Okay. He is invading on behalf of God. God. Yes. Yeah. We're on a mission from God, if yeah. you will. So the tapestry actually has pictures of this banner, and it also has pictures of Halley's Comet. Cool. Because it appeared at the end of April 1066. Yeah, that's super cool, right? It is, yeah. The Normans thought this was a sign from God that they were righteous, and Harold was an evil, oath-breaking scum. So they get ready to invade and sail across the English Channel, land in Hastings in September. Mm-hmm. The tapestry at this point actually has some very oddly anti-Norman things, like infighting amongst their group and shows them kind of raping and pillaging and stealing livestock and women and children standing by and crying for mercy. Things I don't think would be on there if it was trying to make the Normans look good, but who knows. Um, Okay, so we're coming to the climax here. The Battle of Hastings. Yes. But it's only fair to first tell you what Harold Godwinson has been dealing with. Mm. Up to this point. Okay. So two weeks before this battle, Harold Godwinson had marched his army from London, New Yorkshire. I looked this up. It's about 275 kilometers. Yeah. Because another Viking has come to seize the throne, Harold Hardrada. So Harold, the English one, defeats Harold, the Viking. Okay. Rather convincingly, but loses a certain amount of his men, some pretty good men. Sure. And then turns right around again and has to march this time over 350 kilometers south to Hastings to meet William. And his, William's troops have been sitting there and resting and eating all that livestock they stole. And uh, they're in pretty good shape. And they had another advantage over the English. Uh, Remember back to the start of the podcast, I don't Mm -hmm. talk about, well, I don't talk about all random things. <laughs> Some things are going to have relevance. Cavalry? Yes. yes. Very good. The English have not adopted cavalry warfare yet. Okay. They don't do that. They use Shetland ponies to carry their stuff. Sure. They're not war horses, though. Um, the Normans had their trained battle horses, and the Normans had their archers. The English are all like, that's not a manly way to fight. Knights don't shoot each other with bows. We engage in proper manly, gentlemanly combat. So, yeah, they don't use those things either. Yeah. So William's army is overwhelming Harold's with the archers and the cavalry. But Harold's army has a more strategic hilltop position, which does really help. Um, William still wins this battle. Uh, The tapestry reads, Harold Rex Interfectus Est... Which means Harold the King is killed. Okay. Um, which is, again, the question is why it would say that. Because if the Normans wrote it, why would they call him Harold the King if they thought he was usurping the throne? Yeah. It, it would just be William the King is comes and claims his throne. Or the evil Harold is defeated or something. Yeah. So, right. so yes, that's another, another question. All question marks. Sure. Okay. So after the battle, William takes some time to... Ride around, pillage, destroy some towns, all the places that helped Harold just burn to the ground. Why not, you know? Um, what was left of the Whiten Gamut decides to support a teenager called Edgar Aethling as the new king. He was Edmund Ironside's grandson, which makes him the great half-nephew of Edward the Confessor. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a dumb plan, to be honest, because as soon as William comes to, quote, discuss the arrangement with them, they just give Edgar to William. 
in a town called Berkhamsted, and they're like, um, sorry, you can have the throne. William mm-hmm. lets him go. It's okay. He doesn't, he doesn't sure. do anything right yet. Probably should have, but, you know. William demands to be crowned king in London. On the way to London, he was attacked by some local Anglo-Saxons who were not so happy, and William did the whole William the Conqueror thing and destroys their whole town, all of their crops, all of their peasants, and uh, that was enough to kind of scare everyone into not opposing his coronation whatsoever. So he was crowned on Christmas Day, 1066, in Westminster Abbey, which, by the way, was built by Edward the Confessor. Cool. Yeah. So, now, William is king of England. What was that like? Well, one of his first big acts was to build the Tower of London. Right. First from wood and then from that beautiful white cane stone that the Normans loved. Mm-hmm. And as you all know, the Tower of London was a prison slash fortress. Yeah. So, you know, very William thing to do. First thing you do. Yeah. Yeah. He sent his men around the country to build castles in pretty much every city they could find. Um, something like 167, something like that, castles, which usually meant leveling whole neighborhoods to make room inside the city walls. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. He then evicts over 2,000 people from the villages in the New Forest, which is in southern England, and he destroys all the buildings that were there so that he could have this completely natural, pristine, 75,000 acre private hunting land. So he is the one that started this whole royal forest thing, which I'm sure you've heard about yes. things like Robin Hood and yeah. such. Um, he did similar things in other forests in England, which made it very hard for the common people to get anything to eat. <laughs> mm-hmm. The penalties for poaching in a royal forest ranged from castration to amputation, but he was more lenient than his children because they were the ones that started imposing death penalties for trying to poach in the royal forest and such. Um, William and his compatriots, of course, came into a large amount of money After they took over. Makes sense. William's brother, Odo, let me remind you, Bishop of Bayeux, he ended up making what is the equivalent of like 86 billion US dollars in today's money from this conquest. Meh. Take or leave it. (laughs) And no, no taxes. Like I said, he's the church. Yeah. So, fun fact about Odo. I think it's funny. He is depicted in the tapestry as carrying a heavy mace. Okay. And that is important because in this day and age, churchmen were allowed to go into battle. They were allowed to kill in battle, but they were only allowed to bludgeon. They were not allowed to stab. That was ungodly. Okay. I mean, that's, that's interesting because I'd never known why they're coming from a, you know, background of playing a lot of video games. There is often an association with monks or like religious figures using maces and, and bludgeoning objects and I had no idea that there was an actual relationship there. Yeah, I don't follow the logic. No. But uh there you go. Yeah. So over the next twenty or so years, William is just marched up and down the country quashing rebellions. Uh one main example is the harrying of the North, is what it's referred to. Okay. Which is in the winter of ten sixty nine to ten seventy. So there was just a lot of rebellions in Northern England. Encouraged by the Scots and the Danes, the Vikings again. Um, So William is just mad. And he's just going to ethnically cleanse the area. He's going to kill everyone. Because then people will know he means business, right? Yeah. He's especially mad because Edgar the Eighthling is back attempting to take the throne from him Mm -hmm. again. Yeah. Encouraged by the Danes and such. 
So he tells his army to kill everyone and destroy everything from Lancaster, New York, from the North Sea to the Irish Sea. So that's an area of about 180 kilometers by 70 kilometers. It's a pretty large strip of land. Yeah. So kill all the people, burn all the crops, all the livestock, all the food, just like all the buildings, literally everything. Um, chroniclers mention like whole villages worth of people that hid in the forest and starved to death so they wouldn't have to be slaughtered by William's troops. Um, it's said that the north of England remained a total wasteland for 50 years after he did this. Wow. Yeah. So because of all these constant fights and so many people dying, too many people were coming to King William with like property disputes to handle and William couldn't keep track of who owed him how many taxes for what lands. Okay. So in 1085, he told his lawyers and accountants to figure out how much of everything everyone owned. And this resulting ledger becomes known as the Doomsday Book. Yeah. Okay. You might have heard of it. Absolutely. Even though it wasn't actually called that until the 12th century. It didn't really have a name before that. Fair enough. So the book was called that because the decisions were unalterable, like those of the Last Judgment, and its sentence could not be quashed. Anyway, so surveyors between 1086 and 1087 went around the country collecting this stuff. They wrote the book in medieval Latin. Um, but as well as uh, being like a register of everyone's land and wealth and belongings, including their serfs, like their slaves. Yeah. Um, it also laid out all the information in the feudal order. So like started at the smallest landowner and went all the way to King William. Cool. Who owes who what? Not just King William, but who owes their local masters, whatever. Um, there were some omissions, <laughs> perhaps that they, the thinking is, you know, the surveyors have been bribed in certain yep. areas. So like, for example, wine was the favorite drink of the Normans. 46 vineyards are listed in the survey, but according to the book, only one of them yielded a harvest. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't have a harvest, you didn't have anything to give. Yeah, yeah. of course. 268,984 people are tallied in this Doomsday book, each of which was the head of the household. So they only recorded, you know. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. And so some historians have worked on this and kind of looked at how much would have been excluded and some different criteria for how many people per household. Anyways, they've they've kind of come to the conclusion that that indicates the population of England at the time was between 1.2 and 1.6 million. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty large. Yeah. At the time, yeah. So the other interesting fact is that William couldn't read. He was oh. illiterate. So he really had to trust some of these people that were yeah. writing this book for him. That might be how some of the things got excluded so easily. I was going to say, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So shortly after this book is complete, William dies really anticlimactically. Hmm. Riding his horse through a village, his troops just burned down, just going for a little trot. He just falls off his horse. Spends six weeks suffering his internal injuries and dies. Okay. Yeah. And the Anglo-Saxons, let's just say they weren't too sad about this. Probably not. No. Um, So that Anglo-Saxon chronicler I mentioned earlier, they had a long poem discussing his death. Okay. I'll read a short excerpt. His people he did bleed... Not from any need. Into avarice he did fall and loved greed above all. Yeah, that was the ode to yes. <laughs> King William. So, I promised you I'd talk about the last person to successfully invade England. Yes. Was it William the Conqueror or was it William of Orange? This is the question. Right. I will let you be the judge. 
William of Orange was a Dutchman who successfully took over England in 1688. And it was a bloodless takeover, though, so does it count? That's the question. Let me explain. And it's a very, very, very long story, the same way this one is. So I'm just going to, like, really try to do it in the short way. So if you're going to yell at me about all the things I skipped, then don't. Okay, I won't. <laughs> so, William's mother, Mary, was the daughter of King Charles I of England, which makes her the sister of King Charles II. Yes. Okay. Then he married his cousin, Mary. Because his consanguinity laws have really... Has really dipped. Laxed. Have yeah. really dipped. Because this is his first cousin. This is like, so his cousin Mary, the daughter of his mother's brother, yeah. James. Yeah. Okay. And yes, everyone's named Mary. Well, it's not going to be confusing at all. Everyone. I didn't name them. So James is going to end up succeeding Charles II, his older brother, and become James II of England. Okie dokie. So the other thing you have to know right now is there's lots of wars and revolutions being fought all over Eng or Europe, not just England, to decide if the Catholics or the Protestants get to be yeah. in charge. Yeah. Very much so. James was eventually a Catholic and William was Protestant. Okay. Okay. So as soon as James took the throne of England, he signs a naval pact with Louis the 14th of France to impound Dutch trading ships and this called for some pushback from William. And William just decides to sail right to England and take the throne. They weren't expecting that, you see. Sure. Um, he claimed he'd been invited by some Protestant MPs and by the Bishop of London. The Bishop was worried because James II's second wife, also Mary. called Mary, yes, mm -hmm. yes, um, she was Catholic. She was an Italian Catholic princess. And she just had a son. Hmm. But... The bishop did not want the heir to the throne of England to be Catholic. Of course not. No, he's Protestant, yes. Because until this son's birth, James's heir was his Protestant daughters from his first marriage. Mary. Yes, the oldest of this was Mary. Mm -hmm. Mary William's wife. Mary. Yeah, Mary. There's a lot of Marys. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. So William gathers an army of Dutchmen and mercenaries and Protestant refugees who had been kicked out of France for being Protestants. And they march to London, and no one stops them. And they're like, okay, I'm going to just keep walking. And they just go to London. And they're like, okay, so I'm going to be the king now? Okay, great. The end. Yeah. It's pretty much how it went. It was called the Bloodless uh, Revolution or the Glorious Revolution. Let's just be clear. King James tried to get an army together. A lot of people deserted his army, and then he had a mental breakdown and then ran off to France. Yeah. So, um... You can be the judge of that counts as an invasion or something else because there is some debate. So either way, William took over England, uh, which William was the last one to do it is the question. Yeah. Basically the same person. I mean, not really not. even at but. all. But, <laughs> but they have the same name, so it's a tie. Yes. Let's, let's say that. And we'll let the, the listener decide. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, I want to get in the habit of mentioning this. We have an email. Teach me something for, that's the, the number, the numeral for. Correct. Teach me something for at gmail.com for any comments or constructive criticisms or requests for episode. Topics. Topics. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Yep. 
anything like that. Um, I'm not even going to guess what I'm going to do next time. You'll just have to find out. Find out. Uh, I do want to say thank you again to everyone for listening to Teach Me Something. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Mm-hmm.